Yannick now sends one deep. Couple of purple jerseys in the fray, and Fairfax comes down with it for the Flyers. What a big time play. Welcome to the biggest weekend of the 2023 regular season. Boy, howdy, do we have some huge matchups ahead of you for week 12. Welcome to Swing Pass. I am Adam Ruffner. That is Daniel Cohen. We've got way too much to get into this episode. I know I say that every single week, but week 12 will not upset the much-hyped New York road trip out west as the Empire defend their championship against the best in the West Division starting on Friday night in Colorado and then traveling to Salt Lake for Saturday's game of the week against the undefeated Shred. That, of course, are the cornerstones of this weekend, but there are a slew of other important playoff implication matchups, including in the South Division, Atlanta and Carolina getting set for their third matchup of the season. Those two teams have split their first two games. One of the oldest and fiercest rivalries in the league will be on display on Saturday. Also in the West Division, an all-important game between the two teams battling for the third and final playoff spot. Six and four LA will go on the road to take on six and three upstart Oakland Spiders. We will get to that game as well. There's a slew of other, I know I keep using slew, there's a bunch of other really important matchups elsewhere as play, playoff teams continue to battle in the Central. And in the East, a couple of teams still trying to stay alive in Philly and Toronto. Daniel, it feels like we have to start with the Empire. I know there's so much juice in this weekend's schedule, but 9-0 Empire, 20 Four straight wins. I was starting to confuse it with their record, their almost record saying home win streak at this point, which is now a 28 game. 24 straight overall victories in a row for New York. They take that on the road against last year's West Division champion Colorado on Friday. And then this year's regular season champion Salt Lake Shred on Saturday. There are just so many player matchups to get excited about. The styles of these teams seem to compete perfectly complement each other. We've got the best defense in the league in New York going up against the best offense in the league in Salt Lake on Saturday. Colorado will have all of its most full-strength lineups of the year after they've been battling injuries over the past several weeks. They seem mm -hmm. to get one of their best defensive lineups. They could possibly challenge New York at altitude. That is always a tough ask for athletes on the road. What is sort of your starting point for framing these matchups right like where are you kind of going to i just almost feel manic trying to approach these things <laughs> there's so many interesting little know, in the middle at, right i i mean i yeah i guess my my instinct is just to take the the big picture approach and that is that coming into the season i think we had the new york colorado game <laughs> we, circled we 100 like we 100 the biggest game of the season right <laughs> But it's yeah. not oh, it's yeah. not the case this weekend. I mean, I, and it's, of course, because Salt Lake is still undefeated. New York is undefeated. Hoping for a battle of the undefeateds. Of course, New York will have to defeat Colorado to make that happen on Saturday night. But it's just, it's interesting that, like, I don't I don't know if it was, like, I, I don't know if it, you felt the same way. But when you, when you saw, like, the game of the week Saturday was going to be New York-Salt Lake, you're kind of like, ah, oh, like, I wish the game of the week was the New York-Colorado game at the beginning of the season, right? And it's just, you know, natural because Colorado won the division last year. 
And I don't think I like I know Colorado has three losses this season, but I don't think they're like any worse than they were last year. I still think this is a matchup between two of the top maybe five teams. I know you had Colorado ranked sixth in the power rankings this week. Um, but like this this first Colorado game, I, I think we we need to get excited about it first, right? Like we can't jump the gun too much to the battle of the undefeated on Saturday. Oh, no, night. Not we still at all. Have to get through Colorado. Uh, so yeah, I just want to let's let's hype up the Colorado New York game first. So we've got the classic. Hold on, hold on. I best throwers in the wait, league wait, wait. matchup. Wait, so, I, I want to. You mentioned that Colorado is ranked sixth in the power rankings, but they feel like they're still kind of like a top four team. And I just wanted to address that. The only reason that they're so low is because the teams above them have played so well this season and have so many sure, quality sure. wins, right? Like this isn't an indictment so much on Colorado as that. They dropped their two biggest games of the year so far against the undefeated Shred. Those were sort of their most important yeah. matchups where it feels like the five teams ahead of them in my rankings, which is obviously completely concocted from the strange brew up here. Uh, <laughs> those teams, it feels like, have won one of their important rivalry matchups. That's kind of why I yeah. slotted them above Colorado and because Colorado has struggled with their consistency in their lineups and kind of play styles they dealt with all these injuries sure. and absences due to u24 worlds etc cetera, etc cetera. there's just to your point i completely agree with you i don't see this colorado team as being any less talented their three losses are by three combined goals right right it's just that they aren't quite where they were last year and and we've heard that from a few other people too there's just a different feel right now for colorado now all that being said, I think that the adversity that they face in the middle of the season prepares them better for this end of season battle with New York, as well as going into the playoffs. It kind of felt like when they got to championship last week, last year, and they had to face the union in the semifinals, they were really flat footed and didn't really know how to approach that interdivisional matchup. I don't think that's going to be the case whatsoever this year with Colorado. They seem more focused. Mm -hmm. They seem able to roll with punches a little bit better. Last year, they were just this pristine machine of execution and deep throws. This year, they're a little bit more rough and tumble, and I think that makes them better competitors, and I think that makes them better prepared, particularly for this matchup against a New York defense that just loves to throw wrenches into everything. You know, it, Like I said at the top of the episode, they're the best defense in the league, and they do it through just throwing a thousand different coverages and rotations and matchups at opposing defenses that all seemingly work. Anyways, I, I just had to get that diatribe out. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, for sure. I, I think when it comes to like individual players, obviously Ryan Osgar is yet again an MVP candidate this season. He's been incredible. One of the best throwers in the league. We had an episode this past offseason where we talked about just like the best throwers right now. And I think Nethercut and Osgar kind of, rose to the top of that conversation and nethercut is nethercut you chose nethercut i took nethercut that's right and he's <laughs> active this week but he was only active for what one of their three losses this year and it was that the first salt lake game where he played like half defense half offense so i feel like you know nethercut seemed to be pretty much in peak form at the beginning of the year i feel like he was throwing like seven assists per game but it's kind of been a while since we saw like I don't know, peak form, elite level Nethercut really dominating the offense. He still, right? he still leads the league in assists per game, by the way. I know that it feels Does like he? he's come down it's a little bit. He's, no, he's missed a handful of games. That's the thing. Yeah, but it's it's still Lord Nethercut. And so, yeah, it's coming down right. from 
seven assists a game to just under six, I think. Now. You yeah. Know, the, the otherworldly number of around six assists a game, somewhere north right. of like 70 per season if he played all 12 <laughs> games. Just, yeah. just a but whole I think, 70 assists per year for Nethercut. That's about but his his absence this year, like he's only played six of their 11 games, right? So like just over half of their games. Huge difference from last year where he, I think he played, okay, he played in 11 of their 12 regular season games, obviously all their playoff games too. So he was just around a lot more. And so I think we've talked about some of the issues for this Colorado team so far has just been the, a bit of inconsistency on the offensive side, also on the defensive side. So it will be interesting that they they do seemingly have one of their top lineups of the year this Friday against New York. It's still just going to be kind of like, I don't know where, I don't know where to put like my prediction for their offensive efficiency. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know how, they're going to do. I don't know if it's like Nethercut reinserts himself and like everything's back to normal or if like all this Atkins stuff on the rise has kind of complicated the flow of the offense. Obviously the ceiling is still there, but I kind of have to like wait and see to have to see how like everything plays out with, you know, back to full strength Colorado offense. It's it's a difficult equation, right? Like there's no denying the talent of Colorado and that's why we had this as possibly the biggest matchup of the season, right? Like as far as stars versus stars and heliocentrism goes, it feels like Colorado is the west response to New York, you know? They kind of right. even built the framework of their franchise very similarly when they announced the signings of Jonathan Nethercutt, Matt Jackson, Jay Frude kind of as their tentpole additions when they were first coming right. into existence as a franchise. And it's like, you know, Colorado, I think, in terms of how you theorize them with Atkins, Fine, or Nethercutt, that's about as loaded of a backfield as it gets. But to your point, they just haven't had reps this season. And so it's hard right. to really approximate how they're going to do against, again, the league's toughest defense, the best strategy planning defense, the defense that goes into each week, identifies the matchups that they can take advantage of, and then just pressure points on those until your offense breaks apart and they can just start running in break trains on you. I mean, that is the long and short of how New York approaches their opposing offensive matchups. And it just feels like, again, to your point, Colorado in terms of talent isn't susceptible, but maybe just in terms of rhythm, in terms of playing together. I mean, it's been a month at least since those three players have all been on the field together in an AUDL right. game. And so there is just, uh, I think, an anxiety or like a skepticism a little bit, given that it's the empire that they're going against. I think well, almost any other defense, it's it's kind of like, well, the talent would clearly just be able to gel and mesh and go. But New York is going to really try to figure out how to keep them out of rhythm right? Like to right. really keep them these separate pieces and, and kind of even like what Salt Lake, I think did effectively in their two matchups, which is sort of isolate Colorado's attack into smaller pods. So it's not the full orchestra of every single, you know, weapon mm -hmm. being thrown at you, but sort of like, okay, you kind of have to overuse Atkins and Finer to do everything. You have to kind of work into the continuation game. I could see New York kind of trying to dissect Colorado's offense a bit, but I don't know. I also could see Colorado just having confidence at home. There's going to be a huge crowd on hand at Marv K Stadium on Friday I, night. I've just there's heard there's over over a thousand pre-sold tickets, like including season ticket holders. Like they're basically 
guaranteed a thousand as like the minimum at this game, which is probably above their season average or maybe right around their season average. So yeah, this could be like one of the most attended regular season games we've seen. I think it'll be interesting to see how the crowd plays because it could go either way in my head, right? Like Nethercut connects on an early deep puck, similar to he did so many times last year for the summit. I felt like he was so good at kind of getting the ball rolling right away to a deep shot sure. to fruit or Matthew AG or someone just breaking away. They just kind of set a chain play up and he just gets to release the 70 yard rocket and it just gets the whole thing going. The, the band and the crowd gets behind him. I could see that happening. I could also see New York really adapting the kind of like wrestling heel role on the road. Like they're going to face a very difficult environment on Friday night. They're going to go into Salt Lake the next night and possibly face one of the biggest crowds ever we've seen in the AUDL. I could see the Empire loving that. I could see them kind of taking on a similar sort of stance as Seattle did in the famous 2016 semifinals matchup against Madison, where they just kind of wanted to quiet the crowd they wanted to shut up that energy and really kind of own the bad guy role i think that osgar yeah even jack williams a little bit you know mr america himself sort of i think they all kind of you know for as much as it is fun to win and kind of be the team on top i think that they'll relish a little bit being in a role of hey these people aren't rooting for us. Let's go show them how hard they I have think to root. Yacht, I think Yacht yeah. in particular loves that. Oh, yeah. like that, that is Yacht his defensive him. mindset. He said as much to us last year at Championship Weekend, you know, that that, that yeah. just kind of fuels him. That I, I think the, the the place I think of that really channels that vibe perfectly is Carolina, right? Like the triangle has always sort of flourished on like self-booing chants on their sidelines and stuff yeah, yeah we did it in 2021 i mean it's kind of the 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 mindset that helped them defeat the empire in that season's championship game and it sort of has set new york on this war path ever since <laughs> yeah no that's right and i i just want to chime in on the new york defense once again because in addition to like the strategic edge you give them over most defenses and just like the playmaking and the the talent that's on both their D1 and D2 lines, it's also just the consistency. And like the the roster consistency of New York this year and in years past is like always near the top of the league. So like that contrast too between Colorado's, you know, somewhat inconsistent rotations this year versus New York, like that's the other difficult thing. It's just like all these guys that know how to play together so well they've had reps all of this year all of last year like it's the most consistent team in the league so that's that's kind of why i get a little bit more excited about the salt lake new york game still because salt lake has been that too like their offense has just been uber consistent and it's and you you know these guys have just built up so much chemistry over the past two seasons and there hasn't been much like you know kerr hasn't missed any games they haven't been lacking any key offensive pieces and so i think the like consistency versus consistency in the shred offense versus the empire defense that is like like the headlining clash for good reason this weekend well well let's get to that matchup in just a second i wanted to talk to you about kind of the flip side of the disc we've been talking about colorado's offense versus the perspective new york defense let's talk about new york's offense versus colorado's defense because 
we talk about inconsistencies. Colorado's defense, I think, has undergone that as well. They were kind of yep. actually, I think, more the cause of that midseason slump because they couldn't produce turnovers because they were juggling Spicer between lines. It kind of destabilized them of their leader. They were down a lot of injuries. They returned mm-hmm. Saeed Semrin this weekend, who was fantastic in the first half of the season getting blocks. Yeah. Big rookie defender. He is the kind of both body type and just mindset that I think will factor in heavily against New York. I mean, he could be a possible person that they throw onto a Babbitt or a Lithiao. He has that kind of size and hustle to potentially take those kind of matchups. And that's going to be all important as, you know, Spicer figures to kind of maybe draw Babbitt, although maybe he goes on to Osgar. I don't know. Spicer, <laughs> Spicer is typically, I feel like he's more towards the backfield. Like he's typically on guys that get a lot of touches. So I, I feel like they'd put him on, yeah, maybe Oscar, maybe Jack. Maybe we see a Spicer I, on I, Jack matchup. I, yeah, I think as I'm thinking about it, Jack makes a little bit more sense. I think it might be a little bit of an Osgar show if Spicer gets him. I just think Osgar's foot speed right now and the way he insists Ugh, just might so be a little bit too much. He loves to push up field, and I think that that removes Spicer from kind of his uh, his his uh, play zone. You know, we talk about how disruptive Spicer can right. be in that backfield. Obviously, he showed that in the last game he played against Minnesota when he got that insane kind of owl head turn block over his <laughs> wrong shoulder in the handler lane like he's he's just a different animal in that space and I think Osgar has the tools to sort of pull him out and expose him a little bit more in the open field but who knows Uh, obviously Cody Spicer is one of the best defenders at adjusting and adapting in game so it might be one of those things where Osgar lands a couple punches early but maybe Spicer gets a later block in the lane yeah I'm just really interested to move him around too I'm I'm interested to see, kind of getting back to maybe my original point, Colorado has struggled a little bit on defense in having full-strength lineups and establishing consistency in the past few games against lesser opponents and offenses. They have started to get back up their block numbers. Second-year player Seth Ferris has done a fantastic job stepping up some of the absences. Alex Tatum is starting to get fully healthy again after experiencing injuries early in the year. Again, Colorado's just been sort of banged up in a subtle way all season. Feels like they're finally starting to get into full shape, and yet this is now the ultimate test, right? The Empire offense. They haven't been the most efficient this year. The team overall is actually in the bottom half of the league in overall scoring, but it would be absolutely um, ludicrous. What? Well, they well, had the yeah, half I mean, game against Boston. The they affected, had some like, terrible affected, weather games early. I know, I know, but at the same time, there. they're not. New York hasn't just been like racking up points, like say Salt Lake, you know, like they don't have a whole handful of 23 plus scoring games. They like to keep the lid on it. But to that point, it would be a complete mistake to say that this isn't one of the two best offenses in the league this year. And do you think that at altitude, New York starts to open up their deep game a little bit more? Do you think that really opens up the Osgar? flick huck show do you think that he continues this hot streak that he's been rolling on or do you think that there is a way in which colorado can maybe honeypot some of the empire throwers into throwing into double coverage into slightly floatier discs than they're used to into team help defense which is something that colorado has been really good at semarin is great at spicer's great at helping over mm-hmm. the top they do a really good job of kind of having the offside defender available and able to sprint back if they need additional help. Um, 
I, I'm just kind of wondering where you're at with that. Do you see that, Do you see the elevation helping or hurting the New York offense? I mean, that's if I'm Colorado's defense, that's what I'm hoping for as much as possible. Like I, I would want New York to try and get in a rhythm of connecting on deep shots because New York's just not a team that has like short field turnovers or backfield turnovers or like underneath turnovers. Like if you're going to take advantage of New York turnovers, it kind of has to be in the deep space helping over the top. So yeah, I think they just need to be like hyper aware whenever Osgar has the disc, almost like encourage those shots potentially. Like I know, I know like the, the limitation of Osgar in last year's East division championship game. A lot of that was like David Cranston's giant Mark that like didn't allow for Osgar to get off those deep shots. I kind of feel like Colorado is better off like encouraging those in, in a lot of similar, like a similar mindset. Of, like, encouraging it's a high risk, high reward play. But like you have to. The in the league, the reigning MVP to just start getting into rhythm. Cause that's, that was kind of like what is, DC did. That was, that was a little bit what DC did. They kind of played like a box in one and tried to take away the other options. And it just allowed Osgar to get into rhythm immediately in the first quarter. And it just felt like, Everything was downhill for the Empire offense from that point. Yeah, but if you like, I, 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 you, I don't I know just, how you're going to manufacture turnovers if you take away every deep shot. Like, I think those deep shots have to go up. Is the thing? Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't want them going up from Oscar. Maybe that's the solution. Like, you still don't want them going up from Oscar, but you want to still force New York into like, I don't know, like Jack Williams or Elliot Chartok, maybe taking more of those shots where yeah. maybe they're slightly lower percentage looks um but really the mindset of just like having that last back defense constantly over the top you know team defense switching off in the deep space like that is where colorado's defense will have opportunities to win because i i do think new york is going to be encouraged to take deep shots based on what we see from colorado's offense nether cuts active new york has the ability to like answer with any big play of their own that colorado has on offense so you know, I, I don't necessarily think this is going to be like the biggest hucking game ever, but that's definitely going to be an element of both teams' offenses. Yeah, I just I hear what you're saying a little bit with Osgar, but he is such a man on fire, and he just becomes possessed <laughs> when he starts getting into a rhythm. I mean, that's when the true yeah, I don't think it'll work necessarily. Comes out. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. I think even though it's an impossible task and no one's really been able to repeat it, you have to try to figure out a way to keep them out of rhythm to, to make them run through those other pieces. I know it hasn't been successful, but it just feels like every single time teams try to take away everything else and let one of the stars just sort of do their thing against New York, it doesn't work out well, right? Like if you allow any one of those kind of Jack Williams, Jeff Babbitt, Ryan Osgar pieces on offense to, to get three scores in the first quarter, it's just kind of donezo from that point, right? Like yeah. they've each just acquitted themselves as being the kinds of players that continue that momentum throughout a game. They're not just going to have that burst in the first quarter and then fade the rest of the game. They kind of ride that out and allow the rest of the team to jump onto their bandwagon. And at, right. at elevation with confidence, that just feels like, Osgar throwing for eight plus assists in a game. Well, here, here's a question. If if Cody Spicer draws the Osgar matchup, and if he has one of those games where he just absolutely shuts down his matchup, kind of like how he shut down Jordan Kerr in that one 
Salt Lake game last year. I know every other game against Salt Lake, Jordan Kurt has done well versus Colorado. But if Spicer can limit Osgar to like, I don't know, maybe like four or fewer total scores, like is that a win for Colorado? Like, do, will Colorado win the game if that happens? When does that happen? <laughs> has Osgar had less than five total scores in an Empire jersey? <laughs> like, I would have to. I'd have to go back and look. I don't Defensive think he has. player of the year would be the guy to to limit it, right? Yeah, I mean, look, if there was one, I just I don't know if Spicer is the right matchup for Osgar. I I love Cody Spicer. You know, I voted for him for Defensive Player of the Year last year. I half thought he deserved it at the midway point this year before he started getting mixed up a little bit more in offensive rotations in the back half of the mm-hmm. season, missing a couple games, but I. When I think of where you want him to match up and to your credit a little bit earlier, like I think it's like a Jack Williams. I think it's a char talk. I think it's kind of putting him on someone that he can cause disruption. It's not so much to say that he can't get some against Osgar. I just think it's going to be back and forth. And maybe you just want to put your best defender on someone who he can really leverage against. And I do think that there are those matchups for Spicer somewhere in the New York offensive rotation. I do think he can find traction somewhere i just don't know if it's against ryan oscar i almost think you put like a ted nguyen or an alex tatum or somebody who's just going to kind of challenge him in foot speed make him run a bunch yeah like i think that's one of the things that you almost have to do with oscar is see if you can stress test him just make him turn into a track meet out there and run as much to his heart's content but maybe by the third quarter that elevation air starts getting to him maybe there is a little bit of a hiccup moment maybe you can get a little bit of a breakthrough somewhere later in the game. I think that might be one of the solutions. Might be. There really I, isn't a solution for Ryan Oscar. I mean, we keep well, referencing the David Cranston, Jasper Tom job they did on him in the East Division title game. He still went off for, what, 300-plus receiving yards and a boatload of scores. Goals, like He was limited, and he had more turnovers than we're used to, but it wasn't like he was really any less effective at the end of the day. He was still just... I just checked his career game log with New York. He's had one game where he was fewer than four total scores. Do you remember which game that was? It was this year. I mean, was it the Boston Ranger game? It was the half game against Boston. He had three assists. You literally That's the way to limit him. You have to shorten the game to play only a half. <laughs> Act of God, a three goal Empire win. Act of God, weather event, uh, uh, suspension yeah. of a half. Like that. Those are those are the ways that you It'd hold Ryan. Thin air in his lungs. We'll see this weekend. <laughs> All right, let's let's put the Friday night matchup for New York to bed. Let's talk about Saturday. Against Salt Lake, again, New York best defense in the league against Salt Lake's number one ranked offense. This is really going to be a test of the two best teams so far during the 2023 regular season. They both sit undefeated. We will see if we actually get Battle of the Undefeateds on Saturday night after the Empire's test on Friday. This is, again, a matchup where it's just... It's hard to talk about individual player ones because you can just start going about 15 deep as far as interesting things to pick apart. I think the biggest ones come down to how does Salt Lake keep their confidence? And one of the things I asked you before this episode, if you're the shred and you're watching Friday night's game, do you want New York to win or do you want them to sustain a loss and to look a little bit susceptible? Now, 
I'll talk through just the brief outlines of pros for both. <laughs> if New York loses, they're mortal. You can see ways in which you can attack them. Colorado will give you a blueprint for how you can maybe defeat them. You will have more confidence because you've beaten Colorado twice so far this year. And now New York has to come into your very, very difficult home stadium at Zion Bank and deal with you, the crowd, and again, another night at Elevation, which really tests these athletes in these kind of matchups. Three, you now get to close out your season as the sole undefeated team heading into the playoffs. I think that will be just an absolute feather in the cap for this shred team that just surges off of confidence that continues to build off of the successes last year into this year. And I think it'll just propel them further. If New York loses though, the last time New York lost was in the 2021 championship game. Do you know what's happened since they haven't lost again? And so you're going to face the most motivated, they're already the most motivated team in the league. And then you're going to face them coming off of just their first loss in almost two years and looking to put you dead in their sights. I, I don't know what kind of result I'm really hoping for from this shred. I think, I think, I think you want a loss just because I think you want to see them bleed, right? Like this New York team is reaching God level territory as far as just what do you do to overcome them? So at least seeing Colorado take them down a peg, I think would be instructional. But again, like pissed off empire is probably the last position you want to be as an opponent facing them. Like, it's just, it's not a good story. I lean that way. I lean that way. I, and also New York, they're not going to lose two games in a row. That's not something that they do ever. I mean, probably 2018, I'd imagine was the last. Yeah, it had to have been 2018. If they even lost two in a row in 2018. But yeah, obviously the undefeated season 2019, the three total loss season 2021. Like this is just not a team that loses very much because even if they have somehow like an off game against Colorado, yes, they're going to be... They're going to be angry. They're going to be like even more locked in. And it just puts even more of a target on Salt Lake's back. Because if New York loses to Colorado, you might be tempted to put Salt Lake in the number one spot in the power rankings. And I don't think New York wants to lose that spot. They've had it all year. So yeah, that's, I, that's if I were Salt Lake, I, I would be more nervous about playing New York if they if New York lost to Colorado. Yeah, I don't know. I still but think you want good arguments it. both ways. I, I think you just want to see it done, right? Because then the the opposite side is okay. New York wins. What what would be what would be the threshold, right? Where you're all of a sudden like, oh, this isn't good. Like, what if New York wins by three plus five plus on Friday night? Just saying. I, I'm not saying that I expect that. This is totally yeah. hypothetical at this point. But <laughs> New York wins by five. You want that version of New York too, when all they got to do is basically play their, I mean, they still have Montreal left on their schedule, but this is effectively kind of their last meaningful regular season game. They've already cinched up the East Division regular season title. These are kind of pride games. And I really think that that actually almost matters more to New York. Again, as I kind of wrote about this week, these are games that New York has built into their schedule very specifically to build up their title defense. They felt like in the past couple of seasons, as good as DC is and as much as they felt challenged, they want a little bit more competition. And so they scheduled these out of division 
West Coast matchups against Colorado and Salt Lake. And these have actually been, I think, the focus of the Empire, even at times a little bit over their matchups with D.C., just because there's such unique uh, opportunities, right, to face completely different systems in a completely different region and a style that is not something that the East is very much accustomed to. There have been scant East versus West interdivisional games other than a championship weekend, right? Kind of goes without saying, given the geographic difficulties and travel schedules. (laughs) It's tough. So Empire just have a whole heap of motivation already. And if they get kind of one notch in their belt from Colorado on Friday, I don't know that I want that version of New York either. I just, it's all to say that like the Empire are going to be problematic no matter what, which is like, duh. (laughs) But let's get more into specifics. So Salt Lake has the best offense in the league right now, not only in terms of stats, but also think in terms of just aesthetics. You watch them and you go within two to three possessions. Yep, this is the best offense in the league. They just look smooth in any of their encounters. Their possession base, I think in their truest state, they are kind of a small ball team that likes to ratchet into continuation throws. But obviously they have the arms and the receivers to challenge any kind of defense deep. Jacob Miller, Sean Canole, Luke Jorgensen have been masterful in anchoring that backfield, and it's just set the table for all of their versatile pieces downfield to do exactly what they need to do. You know, Jace Dunabal has merged into one of the best speed receivers in the West Division, if not the league. Uh, Grant Lindsley has plugged in and played as to be expected at like a champion's level and has really just Mm -hmm. added an edge and a complexity to the shred team that was already good. Elijah Jaime has been Elijah Jaime, which is to say he just goes out there and he scores three to five goals every single time he steps on the field. There really isn't a hole in his game. It's not particularly uh, a wide array of moves that Jaime has. You know, he's not out there chucking bombs and getting every other touch or something, but he remains one of the most efficient offensive pieces you can put onto any lineup, seemingly on any team, and he will perform. And then there's Jordan Kerr, who we've talked about before. I was thinking about this week, you know, we talked so much after last season and his amazing West Division championship performance, second most assists ever in a given year, just just absolute user controlled kind of video game numbers as far as his statistical production and also Mm -hmm. the impact he had on that team's success. And we talked extensively about how, how could he improve on that? What would actually take for him to win kind of an MVP without sort of depreciating some of these values because in order for there to be more team success it seems the reason that he would have to allow for some of these individual gargantuan statistical accomplishments to diminish a bit and that's exactly what's happened this season and yet i sit here and i think in going into week 12 he's got to be my mvp right like you just see how even as the scoring numbers have depreciated a little bit even as he's kind of become more of a a piece within the system as the entire talent level and execution rises for the shred, he's Mm -hmm. no less effective or dangerous with or without the disc. And everything still kind of revolves around his gravitation to uh, finish drives with all of the bag of lefty throws that he has. I mean, he just continues Mm -hmm. to add to his arsenal. There really doesn't seem to be a point in putting a mark on him half the time anymore because He'll just figure out whatever throw he wants to put around it. I'm just so impressed with how he continues to re- evolve and refine his game. It, it, he He's upped his completion percentage this year. He's, he's more mm-hmm. efficient from deep as a thrower. 
he he's more I think dynamic in the red zone, which is hard given how good he was last year. But it just again it feels like he's even more confident in the step through, breakthrough, low release, high release, whatever he wants to do throws. I'm just again like as good as every other piece on the shred has been, and as much as they've played to an elevated level, people have been saying all season, you know, everyone on the shred team is better in 2023 than 2022. That goes doubly again for Kerr. It just he's he's it for them. Like he continues to be the talisman in a way in which, as good as everyone else is playing, as much as you want to talk about the seasons of Jacob Miller, Will Selfridge, and Grant, and and Sean Knoll, and and everyone else on this team, it's still when the dust settles. Feels like, damn, that Jordan Kerr's impressive. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I think it's his his deep receiving too. Like I, I mean, he had some big breakaway goals last year, but. I think the the fact that the whole team has gotten better around him has kind of allowed him to just release away from the disc a little bit more often this year, not feeling the need to, okay, if they get on the other half of the field, like he's got to get the disc in his hands because that's the only way they're going to score. It's like, no, he can get a little bit more creative with his cuts. And he still has like such a quick first step that seemingly gets quicker every single year where he just immediately gains several yards of separation whenever he's going deep. So yeah, I think his like the well-roundedness of his game has continued to improve, even though obviously the numbers are are going to be lower this year, just by default. Um, I do think it's interesting though, because the shred offense is very flow based. It's not like Kurt has, he doesn't have the same propensity to huck as Ryan Osgar. I think that's probably the biggest difference between the two, right? Like, Kerr is part of, he's a cog in the system that's like very flow based, very like a lot of 10 to 15 yard throws and just like five to 10 throw score possessions where it's just like, it's quick, it's methodical. New York is like, I, I'm just, right now, I'm, I'm just going into like the Kerr versus Osgar MVP conversation where it feels like New York is so patient at times. And then Osgar gets the disc and then it's like, okay, they can score now. So like when it comes to like individual value, it's hard because we haven't seen the Salt Lake offense without Jordan Kerr yet. So the other thing I appreciate is when Osgar is not in the New York lineup, which we saw in one game this year, it was that game against Philly. Like there is a clear missing piece to New York. So it is super hard to measure the value of these guys and like contrast the two. But I see Hucking as like the main differentiator do you feel like salt lake's ability to to like get in rhythm hucks is going to be challenged by new york or like do you think do you think their offensive (laughs) like do you think their offensive identity is going to go through some some issues uh this saturday i guess is the bigger question if I were to put on my thinking cap and put myself put into on. the position of New York's coaching and staff and kind of analytics roles, I think that one of the things I'd be trying to limit as much as possible is those power position opportunities that Salt Lake gets seemingly at will. I mean, they are yeah. so good at kind of positioning their upfield cutters in a way and having such trust that Jacob Miller and stuff will just come blitzing from like 20 yards behind the play and like take a handoff basically and be even with the continuation player. But then there's Dunabal or somebody releasing deep and it's just easy money and like almost a transition look. It's not even kind of an right. upline power position. It's almost this parallel kind of it, it. It's almost in a way like a screen 
in the way that they use it because the the trailing defender that's guarding the thrower coming up is going to be a couple steps behind the defender on the mark cannot transition quick enough or skag over to eliminate that and so it just leaves canole or miller or sometimes kerr with just these wide open looks upfield for continuation throws essentially so i think if i'm new york i'm looking to absolutely stunt against that i'm looking flat marks i'm kind of looking at what philly did a little bit against the empire where you you really try to challenge them or or, excuse me uh i'm getting confused i think that i would look a little bit towards like what philly did as far as like taking away new york's own deep looks and kind of stunting some of those upline power positions that new york likes to get to and -hmm. trying to apply that into how i approach the shred and trying to put them a little bit more behind the disc in where they're getting their looks but like you say how salt lake generates so much of their offense is through kind of behind the line of scrimmage lots of different rotating pieces swings resets getting the disc out and under a second or two yeah it's quick i don't know like i don't know thing i don't know that you really solve much by eliminating the deep throws i think you eliminate some of the dangerousness the explosives that the shred are capable of absolutely you take away a little bit of verticality but shred do such a good job of playing small ball without becoming bundled or condensed or allowing defenders to sort of like poach into that space because i think Mm -hmm. what new york is going to try to do is box them into a kind of 20 by 20 foot area or yard area and then allow like the drosts a cats a a john randolph to try to pick and poach into those spaces but the shred with their quick movement with their trust with their chemistry I think do such a good job of still sponging open enough space so that defenders can't just blitz in and try to get poach looks. I, I don't know. I think that that's going to be one of the most interesting uh, yeah. points to watch for in the game is which team kind of wins those trenches. It's almost like a right. line battle to me in the NFL where it's like, can New York stunt the the continuation looks that make the shred explosive? And then also, figure out a way to contain the small ball that will happen as an adjustment result and still get their league leading takeaway numbers? Or will the shred simply be able to sort of adjust and weave off of that? Are they simply being forced more into their kind of comfort zone on offense, which is, again, to your point, a a small ball weave, like really setting it up with lots of different pieces. I don't know. I I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, it's a super interesting clash of styles because i I also think the the salt lake offense i was just looking through their hucking numbers they're really only coming from sean canole like he he's completed 20 hucks this year grant lindsley has seven and then a bunch of guys are tied at six including jace dunabile somehow uh and jacob miller kerr has only completed three hucks this season Mm -hmm. i think he's three for five on hucks so i'm also thinking like okay if you like just worry about Sean Canole and like worry about him getting in power position if you take that away then you can really key in on like somehow gumming up that like middle motion that the shred like to run I feel like this could be a big a big drost game I could see some clutch blocks by the drost uh late in this one and so I, I feel I, like they, I, they've got the guys like like the draws John Randolph I feel like those guys are, are probably chomping at the bit to to try to somehow suffocate this shred offense i mean it's going to be a challenge 
But I, I do, do I do feel like New York defense has it in them to just like stop a lot of what Salt Lake likes to do. I think the team speed of Salt Lake's offense might challenge specifically some of the more veteran players on the Empire. I think that they've been able to maybe uh, play those pieces to their strengths against East Division opponents because of the familiarity of matchups, right? You know what mm-hmm. each of those DC players, say, are going to be doing in their offensive roles. And so you kind of know how to hide some of the inefficiencies of, I think, New York's defensive lineup because every lineup is going to have them. And I'm interested to see if in this completely new environment, if there's ways in which shreds offensive sort of speed and youth and athleticism can take advantage of an empire team that likes to set up, you know, like they're so good at getting the defensive framework of each point into place so that you're playing their game. And I'm wondering if, Shred can maybe speed things up a bit and just get them New York's defense slightly out of step. Because I could see, to your point, Dros could have a big game. I could also see if it's being played in the open field, them having trouble keeping up with Dunabile right. and Selfridge and Grant Lindsay and Elijah Jaime. That's a ton yeah. of speed. That's a lot of speed to keep up with. Ben Katz is a terrific defender. I don't necessarily trust him just playing one-on-one in space against any one of those players, right? Like, right. I'm interested to see if Salt Lake can kind of disrupt New York's defensive confidence. Because again, like the Empire just have been able to kind of clamp down and do what they want over the course of the game against any East Division opponent. Can they do it against the league's best offense? I don't know. I mean, the matchup I keep going back to, we've talked about Kurt. He's probably going to draw Ben Yacht. And that's going to be just... I, I, I think... I mean, if you're going to put size onto Kerr and try to match his foot speed, who better than the two-time reigning MVP? I just think Kerr is way quicker than Yacht. Don't you think Kerr could just, like, juke him? I I think that in an agility case, yeah, but if there's any kind of loft onto a disc, that's Yacht's playground, man. And it's not like Yacht doesn't have leg speed in the open field. I mean, he covered Jacob Fairfax great last year at Championship Weekend. He continues to be a fantastic over-the-top help. They do a good job, too, of sometimes not always putting him on the immediate defender, but allowing him to play more of a free safety role where he can just be the canopy defender coming off of the backside. And then all of a sudden you're in a jump ball scenario with arguably the best jump ball getter ever in Benyatt. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that's where my mind goes to because I think Marquez Brownlee is a maybe matchup, but that feels like another advantage yeah. for Kerr, and he's more of a, a handler defender at this yeah, point. Yeah, right? I could see Brownlee taking Canole, I feel like, because Canole is, is one to strike deep with his legs. Yeah, I feel like yeah and Canole... Come out on top in those battles. Canole is sneaky good in the air, too, and I think Brownlee's length and athleticism really kind of puts a cap on some of Canole's ability to release into the deep space and become a pretty effective receiver. Actually, the other matchup on. that I wonder about for hold Kurt, on, real quick, real Oliver quick. Chartok. Oliver Chartok has been kind of a secret weapon for this Empire defense all year. He's big. He has speed. I, I think they could do a couple of points under Kerr. I think Kerr holds an advantage, obviously, but Chartok has been great this year. You know, they threw him on Pollard in week one. He was great. He was great against DC in both matchups. He's really elevated into the larger roles that they've given him. And I could see 
in the second game of the weekend, him kind of being a player that maybe we didn't talk about too much going into such a star-studded battle, but he continues to acquit himself as one of the most important pieces in this 2023 Empire campaign. I wanted to mention Marquez Brownlee is not active for the Salt Lake game. He will play against Colorado, but he will not be active for Salt Lake. Also out is Charles Weinberg, who is he missing the Colorado game as well? He might not be with the team this weekend. Yeah, so he's out both games. Do you do either of those absences matter to you in your mind, given yeah. New York's depth? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I definitely think against Salt Lake on Saturday that Weinberg and Brownlee could potentially be really key pieces. I really like them for kind of their down matchup possibilities. And again, right. Brownlee seems like a perfect kind of defender for a, Jorg- a Luke Jorgensen or Canole in the backfield where his length mm-hmm. is just going to be problematic on the mark. If you throw anything floaty, he's going to gobble that up. Obviously, right. New York has pieces that they could potentially replace him with, but not quite of the caliber of Brownlee's been at the past two seasons as a handler defender. I mean, he was all defense a year ago. And then on the flip side, I think that given the kind of intensity and athleticism of the shred defense, you do need to have that balanced attack and figure out where you can sort of diversify a bit more of your attack. And I think that against the shred and against the way in which they just kind of come at you and wave after wave Weinberg was potentially going to be somebody who could have a really effective game as a continuation piece as he's done in matchups against DC and other top teams of just kind of getting 10 to 15 touches but two of them are really great in rhythm hucks he's keeping everything open and kind of continuing to push the vertical dimensions of the field I think that that's a big loss. Obviously, the Empire have players that they can replace him with, but he's been really, really vital to their ability to put Benyat on the defense. You know, him elevating his play and coming in last year allowed them the opportunity to experiment with Yacht on defense because he is such a good continuation player. And in this kind of elevated, high-caliber matchup, it just figures that any kind of absence is really going to have significance. The the missing Charles Weinberg, I think, could be replaced by Oliver Chartok, as you mentioned before. He's been playing could... some offense in those situations this year. Also, John Randolph, they slot into offense occasionally. So I kind of I kind of like the maybe and like Ben Yod could obviously play that role, too. So I kind of like the, the opening up of the O-line, too, potentially. But yes, obviously a big absence. The last matchup that I want to talk about, this is just a New York episode at this point. Uh, but we got to talk Joel Clutton and hopefully Jeff Babbitt. Oh, right? man. Thank you. Some, Thank can you. we get some Clutton-Babbitt action? <laughs> I mean, that's like monster trucks going at it off of jumps, right? Like, <laughs> I, I'm just maybe picturing them. Just... Like, they're going to have such a physical matchup, too. Like, those guys are just, they're bullies on the field. like that, And they're both, like, two of the top buzzer-beater athletes in the entire league right now. So uh, yeah, you think I'm, if meters, they should just clear sure. out and let them go at it one v one. Like everyone, <laughs> honestly, that'd like, be so good. That'd be so great. Everyone <laughs> should just be on the same page. Just like let those two guys battle for four quarters. It's oh, it's a uh, Godzilla good. versus King Kong. Just let them fight. Like we all get a watch. Just like they're gonna tear down half the city and like you know cause a global outrage or whatever. But like just just let them go at it. Just let the two yeah. beasts at a downfield no that's gonna be that's gonna be a huge matchup and of course Clutton just having one game under his belt he got re-signed right before last week's matchup against Portland 
got one game of reps, and now the biggest test of the season is ahead on Saturday night for Salt Lake. We spent so much time on these first know, two games. We still like got to get to the rest of them. We're going to get to it. So let's okay. move on to the South's big matchup <laughs> of the weekend, Atlanta at Carolina. This is a rematch of the first two times these two teams met this season. Atlanta won the first meeting. Carolina won the second most recent meeting. Atlanta won by five. Flyers won by six. This is about as close as a rivalry as we get in the league. Every single time these two teams meet, there is fireworks. And it stands to reason in this one, too, because if Atlanta wins, they clinch their first ever South Division regular season title. If Flyers win, they stay alive to potentially claim a first seed in an all-important home playoff game. Where do you kind of fall in your allegiances in this? I tend to skew a little bit towards Flyers just because I think historically mm-hmm. in this matchup they've had the mojo, although they will be without some very key starters. And Liam, Sur- Liam Searles Bowes, Matt Guccohannis, and Joe White, all three of which were major contributors in the Flyers' last win against the Hustle. But again, this Carolina team just has still one of the most deep and talented rosters in the league. Their offense will once again be at full throttle. I tend to trust Carolina, but they've been out of action for damn near six weeks at this point. Are they going to be a little rusty? Does Atlanta have enough motivation to get kind of the the win that I think has been evading them a little bit? It's felt like the Hustle have had some really quality wins over the last two plus seasons, and yet the win that they've sort of needed each year has eluded them. This feels like an opportunity to get one of those back, to really kind of stick it to the Flyers, get it again, an all-important home playoff game, one game away from a championship weekend berth, the first ever potentially for Atlanta. It just has a ton of motivation for Atlanta. And yet again, whenever that happens, it feels like that is exactly the moment in which the Flyers lock in and they say, oh good, we get to ruin Atlanta's hopes, right? Like these two teams feed off of that kind of opportunity against each other. It's it's obviously going to be another close game. Selfishly, I hope Carolina wins because that sets up literally the final week of the season to be Carolina versus Atlanta. Winner gets the one seed in the South, which I just think is a cool setup. Uh, but I I personally would favor Atlanta given those lineup absences for Carolina this week. I just don't think they've shown the ability to like really win these big games without their top end players. Like this was how they were at the beginning of the season, basically when they started off 0-2, right? And like, I I think there is a pretty significant difference when they just don't have the same core of like elite level throwers that are all probably like top 50 players in the league right now. And those guys are out of the lineup. I mean, we saw Joe White's ability to take over in that game they won in DC, we've seen like what they look like when Yannick and Gujo Hannes are both active together. Obviously, it's one of the best duos in the entire league. Liam Searles Bowes has been fantastic this year. I just don't know. I mean, I know Carolina has the depth, but I still think this Atlanta team is super talented this year and they're at full strength. They're getting back a lot of guys. This is maybe the best lineup they'll have this season. So I just, I favor that. And yeah, I think there might be something to some Carolina rust. It is weird that they haven't played in so long. I, you know, we haven't talked about them in so long. So it's hard to like remember where they were at. I mean, I know they were on, they were on the upswing after those early season losses for sure. 
But yeah, this still feels like a game that Atlanta could very well win by like a few goals, in my opinion. Like I, I'd probably favor Atlanta by two and a half is my gut. Yeah, I hear you. I think that in the first matchup, it was like peak Atlanta. It was when they looked like a top three unit. Yeah, early Atlanta was good. They scored 24 points against the Flyers after failing to score 20 plus in any of their meetings last year. It just felt like they completely reasserted themselves. Brett Hallsmeyer was massive in that first meeting. And then in the second one, it was sort of like a complete reversal. Other than Justin Burnett making a couple of outstanding highlight plays, Atlanta's defense couldn't really get much pressure on the Flyers. It felt like Mm -hmm. one of those classic Carolina games where they're just able to both play small set red zone, Yannick and Gucci Johannes working it, and as well stretching things out with Liam Searles, Bowes, Trevor Lynch, Jacob Fairfax getting into those long games. I'm interested to see which of those styles kind of prevails. If Atlanta's offense can sort of get back its confidence, it's felt like They've they've had it in ways, but given the quality of their opponents over the last month and the way in which they've rode defensive trains, I am a little concerned in the same way that the Flyers have been a little bit on ice, that Atlanta hasn't faced a defense the caliber of Carolina, and just they're still not two years removed from an AUDL title. This is still an absolute blue blue blood franchise. I kind of expect Carolina to come out of this dormancy with a little bit of fire. Like, I think that they're absolutely a team that wants to reassert itself on the more general landscape. And what better way to do it than taking Atlanta down a peg again and setting up an even more important matchup the following weekend where they could really undo Atlanta's top positioning in the division right now. Yeah, I I get it. I think I just trust Atlanta's offense more like I'm just looking through the Carolina roster right now and like I couldn't confidently tell you which seven are on their starting outline just because it's not like you're gonna have to go in like the six and seven guys probably haven't played a ton of offense or like aren't obvious picks for the O-line this game so like maybe they do what they were doing earlier in the season where they just get like very flexible with their lines which worked at times but I just don't think that's a recipe for success when it comes to like in Atlanta or a DC or New York those types of games So I I think I'm just trusting Atlanta a little bit more given these lineups, but of course it wouldn't surprise me if Carolina wins. And if they do win both these games and secure the one seed, like they are still Carolina. You have them ranked third in the power rankings for a reason. So I get it. Yeah. I mean, to me, they're the Spurs, right? The, the San Antonio Spurs in the NBA for years had like a 700 win percentage and they'd always kind of shut down their stars after February for a few weeks leading up to the playoffs and, They would kind of go through a lull and then they would all of a sudden just reignite the second important game, start it up again, and just, of course, push deep into the playoffs seemingly every year. And it just feels like the Flyers have a very similar sort of DNA where they can remain, I think, more dormant and me have more confidence or or baseline level of confidence more than almost any other team. Just because, again, they have that title not too far in the rear view mirror. Like that is a huge, huge point, I think, to what this Flyers team comes from. And on the flip side, it's like, I do agree. I think for how they've been playing, Atlanta is the better team and should be favored in this matchup. I'm just the the historical jockey, I guess, who continues to remember the sort of precedence been set and the way in which the tone of this rivalry goes. And I think that kind of stuff matters. You know, 
coming from a position of having watched Senso Division for years and the ebb and flow of this landscape, like that that weird cosmic sort of intangible stuff, it There's plays in. There. It plays yeah. in. And you could just, I feel like you saw it in the last meeting where, again, Atlanta was rolling at that point in the season. Like they still had all their confidence going into that second meeting in Carolina and the Flyers held them to 15 goals and just kind of turned the lights out on an otherwise really electric offense that had been building for the hustle. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see which style of hustle we see because they still have an efficacy to their deep attack, but they are nowhere near the kind of volume shooters that they used to be even as recently as last year. Bobby Lay and Austin Taylor obviously still have the throwing talent to engage that look, but they're way more circumspect, I feel like, and way more keen on engaging more of that small ball. It feels like Christian Olsen has become a bigger player in their offense this year, even though he was so good last year. It just feels like the the shape of the offense has taken on more of his sort of style, and it's allowed him mm-hmm. into a more, I think, effective role. He, he just continues to be, I think, one of the most underrated pieces on a contending team in the AUDL. He's so, so good for them, and kind of what you were probably looking through, their, their low turnover numbers and sort of the reformation of this offense very much, again, feels built out of his kind of character of dismovement, of always kind of right. making that right. extra pass. And it's just set everything up to be so easy for them offensively. I like after a couple of their matchups, I struggle to think of like highlight plays for this Atlanta team because they're so content. <laughs> right. It's it weird. Moving the disc into the end zone. You know, it's a lot of Matt Smith simply being open and running away from people. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm just, I'm interested to see Atlanta's offense. In addition to Halsmeyer going off in that first Atlanta Carolina game, uh, Liam Haberfield had like his breakout game of the season. Yeah. He had many highlights in that game. That was when he like fully unleashed the the flick hawk that we'd heard so much about. And I think yeah. it was two Holzmeyer, right? It's just like an eighty yard bomb, perfectly in stride. He's active for the first time in about a month. He wasn't playing in any of those Texas games, so yeah, I, I'm kind of excited to see this Atlanta team that we haven't seen against like an elite opponent since their New York game, which they didn't look bad in, but yes, of course they, they lost the game, but they, they hung with them for a lot of that second half. Uh, it'll be good. Cause I, I feel like early on, there were like a lot of, there's a lot of like clashing in the South division. It's kind of like been coasting for a while. So it's good to be like back in it this weekend. I mean, Austin has literally already finished. Austin's done with the season. Play in the last two weekends of the regular season, so they're nine and three, just awaiting the results of this. And obviously, they will be rooting hard for the Flyers to unseat Atlanta this weekend, and then the next weekend for the Hustle to get their revenge. That would, of course, then. Oh nope. They want Flyers to win both games. I apologize. Right. Well, you think? Do you think Austin wants to play? Atlanta in round one of the playoffs? I don't know who Austin wants to play. They're one of the most <laughs> confusing teams to me. I don't know what to expect for the soul going to the playoffs. We can we can table that because we need to move on. We need to get to the West yeah, Division yeah. game. Let's talk about 6-4 and four LA traveling to face 6-3 and three Oakland. Two of the most intriguing teams given their additions over the offseason. I would say that both teams have vastly exceeded my expectations for them this year. I had a whole bunch of confidence that these two teams would look like this at some point. 
I didn't think it would be by the 12th week of this season, given how young these rosters are, given how relatively few reps a lot of these units have had together. Mm -hmm. I think that it's really encouraging for both LA and Oakland franchises to kind of see how much they can challenge both the top dogs and still stay actually relevant and in the playoffs at this point in the season. Because again, I liked Oakland a lot hanging into this year. I loved how they kind of rallied after their own five start to the 2022 season. They showed mm-hmm. a lot of moxie. There's that van of Spiders players that showed up in Portland for All-Star Weekend and were some <laughs> of the biggest fans. You know, they've they've had this kind of team chemistry element, but now all of a sudden it's like they've got this, this firepower to them. I mean, they take down Colorado. They give Salt Lake a great matchup at home a few week, weeks ago. Like, this is a stout Spiders team that goes deep on both lines. They still have a lot of room to develop. There's still a lot of kind of mistakes born of inexperience or again, like lack of repetitions together. But mm-hmm. when, when you just sort of see the bones and architecture of this Oakland team, they're absolutely a competitor and they think of themselves as such. And LA on the other side because of their twin engines in McDougal and Giannis, they just have two of the most competitive players in the entire league. And that is simply what has been motivating them through this kind of second half push after they started one and three. You know, they've been five and one right. in their last game, which is one of the hottest teams in the league. And they look like it. They look like a completely different team after those first couple of games. They've gotten way more buy-in. Everywhere on offense, their defense, while not necessarily being efficient, is getting boatloads of break opportunities through Lucas Ambrose and all this rejuvenated pressure that they have this year. They returned mm-hmm. Calvin Brown for the first time, fresh off a U24 gold medal. He hasn't played for the team since 2021. It'll be really interesting to see how far he's evolved. He was already the, one of the most impactful players in the league at that point. It's two yeah. years later on, and from what I've seen of him playing, at Worlds, he's only going to plug in and be better. You kind of think of him as being like a D-line player. I'm wrapping this all up to say, what are you really looking forward to in this LA-Oakland matchup? I think it's going to be kind of a shootout. I expect it to be a game in the 20s. I don't really see these t- two teams yeah. holding too much or or uh, really going for anything other than the deep shot and kind of the big ballsy play. Um, yeah. No, I, I I would agree with that. I think I'm right. I'm most looking forward to just how which offense can look cleaner more consistently. And I like I probably favor Oakland a little bit more because they just have like this very widespread attack that's almost like Salt Lake esque, where they just like get in these flows, they run these weaves. Whereas LA does seem a little bit more reliant on. Giannis Van Dusen and then sprinkling in McDougal as like their downfield finisher a lot of the time. I I'm curious because these teams have like they kind of have similar but different offensive identities. Like there there is a lot of like small ball movement that takes place in the backfield, but then Oakland I just feel like does a far better job of like integrating really all of their pieces until they can find a guy like Keenan Lawrence in the deep space. And I just think the, like the, the raw speed and athleticism, I also favor to Oakland, but it is like, it's an, it's an experience issue too. Like you, like you said, Oakland has not played like the cleanest offensive games. They're not going to come into these games and have like 12 or fewer turnovers. Like I feel like they're always at least in the teens, right. And LA too, like these teams are not 
so fine-tuned in terms of like the elite teams in the West Division, the elite teams in the league. But I think that makes it kind of even more of an enticing matchup because you know it's not going to be perfect offense from either side. It's just like who can find that rhythm early enough and then just maintain it and build on it throughout the game. Yeah, I I guess with those kind of extra or maybe slightly more disposable mistakes on the table, it does lead me just in an abstract way to, I think, favor LA, given again, the kind of pieces that they have in Pablo Yana, Sean McDougal, even Calvin Brown. I mean, those are players that take advantage of the opportunities. And it's not to say that Oakland doesn't have those players. I just think that they're not quite as experience. I mean, McDougal's been a killer for Aviators this year. He's probably the most underrated player that we're not talking about in like an MVP sense. He has just been everything for this team. He's one of the best marks in the league all of a sudden. He's getting these hand blocks at a ridiculous pace. And it's just, it's that part, right? Like LA's got that guy. They've got the league's all-time leading thrower in Giannis. They've got one of their biggest prospects in Calvin Brown. And again, it's not to say that Oakland doesn't have Dexter Lawrence and Keenan, or excuse me, Dexter Clyburn and (laughs) Keenan Lawrence and Evan Magsig. Mac Hecht is only listed as dressed in this game, by the way, but I expect him to be starting. Like, it's not to say that the Spiders don't have a ton of talent. They're just, they're not white at the level of what LA's leadership is, right? Like it's not, it's not quite these league legends of, again, right, right, right. who just, There's a who, have been, who have been the fulcrum of this team's success in the back half of the season. And I, I think that that matters. I think, especially against these West division opponents that would otherwise be kind of coin flip games, having those kinds of stars in the roles that they are, has been what has been propelling the aviators into this playoff picture, right? Like, we, we said after they started one and three, like, this is a team that's going to take some time, get their, get their <laughs> stuff together. Like, we expect to see them really come into fruition in 2024. They sped that timeline all the way up. It's now. You know, they're, they're still down some pretty significant absences to the roster. Jason Valley hasn't played since the beginning of this season. Daniel Brunker's been sidelined. Chris Mazur will not be available in this game, and yet, Mm-hmm. I still really like where LA is at. They've done a really good job of not only kind of putting their stars in favorable positions, but then filling out around all of that. I I think I like Oakland a little bit more. And some of that is is coming from like the fact they're playing in Oakland and like how much of an energy team we've seen oh, Oakland yeah. be, especially in that Colorado game. Like I know that's that's like the freshest example because that was just like such a big statement win, but those plays that they made down the stretch and like the way it, it rallied the crowd, it rallied the bench. Like they, they stormed the field after every like big statement sky that that's just tough to, to deal with as any, any away opponent coming into that situation. Like I know Giannis and McDougal, obviously seasoned vets and very used to like dealing with road environments, but there is something that just, there's like an ignition switch on this Oakland team where I feel like if they get some big plays late in the game, even if they're down, they have the ability to like thunder back and take the lead. I I totally agree with you about how Oakland fuels off of their home stadium, their own internal team energy. I will say though, what complicates this is that oftentimes Oakland's home games are the second of a road back to back. That will not be the case this weekend. LA will just be playing them fresh out the gate. 
And so it'll be interesting to see if the spiders can serve a little bit more of that energy because it felt like they had that energy to give, given that Colorado was coming off of that just uh, sure, sure. game against Salt Lake. Colorado had no energy. Yeah, yeah, and and I just wonder that aviators have been good at bringing that kind of energy. I thought they did a really good job of sticking in that game the other week against Salt Lake. It felt like the shred were maybe going to yeah. pull away, and LA's defensive pressure continued up in the second half. Of course, Lucas Ambrose got three blocks on the night, as he seemingly does almost every He's game so now. <laughs> he, he leads the league in takeaways as a rookie. He's been the most electric defender in years, it feels like, and we've had some darn, darn good ones, but he's just on a different level. And so I think that if Oakland gets too greedy in some of those deep shots and it gets into Ambrose air territory, like that could be really problematic. You know, again, Ambrose is maybe the best player ever at baiting these deep looks and still being able to get the block. Oakland yep. loves to throw trust balls into single coverage. And that has not worked out well in one-on-one matchups against the league's best going up against Ambrose. I mean, He's felled Travis Dunn, Khalif El-Salam, Rafi Hayes. He's not just getting these blocks on down matchup rotation players. These are the league's best. And Oakland's been fantastic. Keenan Lawrence has played like an MVP kind of player. Dexter Clyburn has shown one of the highest ceilings in the league. Ambrose isn't really afraid of that yet. And so it'll be interesting to see if he can generate a handful of blocks, where the direction and kind of, I think energy of this game it's gonna be such a game of runs too i feel like it's just gonna be both teams kind of trading off momentum definitely do you feel like the winner of this game is going to get the third seed in the west because they play again next week and i think oakland has one more game against san diego i think yeah so i think uh oakland comes down to san diego and la next weekend um so while they do have they're a half game up on LA right now. It still feels like it's going to come down to these two meetings. But like, does this outcome, you feel like that's going to determine kind of what happens next weekend in a way? In in two game season series, point differential is so important that I can't ascribe it to just yeah. one match. Because if it's a two goal or one goal game, then right. the next matchup is just as important between these two teams. If it's a five goal blowout in one direction, now that changes things a little bit, you know, it, it puts a lot yeah. more pressure on that loser, but if it's a close game, it still feels like it's either of these teams to take. I mean, I don't really have a favorite between LA and Oakland. I see this as a real true toss up, depending on even what the weather is going to be like within that Oakland yeah. stadium. It can get real wind tunnely. And I feel like that actually favors LA given their pieces Given Pavel Giannis on one side, given the defensive pressure Maybe. on the other, I, I think it might. And and There's again, I just want to throwers on Oakland though. They've got like five guys that can handle on that O line. But to your point, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're reducing their turnovers to these you know <laughs> well, up yeah. marks. It doesn't necessarily lead to fewer mistakes. They're still kind of working right. into that rhythm. And they're, and they're such a green light bunch on that Oakland throwing rotation. It's. It's not to say that they aren't fantastic throwers, but they aren't exactly all putting up, you know, Salt Lake's uh, efficiency throwing stats, for example, right. where their starting eight offensive throwers are completing above like 94.5%. That's not the Spiders. They're like between right. 91 and 94. Like they, they <laughs> yeah, like their sweet spot. Yeah, they, li- they like those deep shots. And so I, I don't know. 
it'll just it'll be interesting to see what kind of tempo this game takes on because I could just see it turning into one of those West Coast battles where by the third quarter they're just trading hucks back and forth. Yeah, should be fun. But before we go, we wanted to just run down a quick list of other games that will have pretty major playoff implications. Starting in the Central Division, there's six and four Chicago visiting eight and two Minnesota. If Minnesota wins that game, they clinch the Central Division regular season title, setting up for a home game for the Central Division championship, which means that Minnesota would be just one win away. If they win this weekend, they will be just one win away from their first ever championship weekend berth, which would be in Minnesota come August 25th and 26th. Just a huge, huge motivating factor for the windshield. They've, again, yeah. won 10 out of their last 11 at home. This is a big favorable matchup for Minnesota, but they have struggled to close out games of similar natures in the past. So it'll be interesting to see sort of the discipline and I think uh, volition that we've seen at times from this windshield team this year. You know, I think they're a tougher unit than they've been in years past. This will be, I think, a real true test for if that is true in 2023. Uh, elsewhere in the Central, 5-5 five and five Pitt will be taking on 7-3 and three Indy. This game will not be played indoors at Grand Park. This will be outdoors. And given how Indy performed last weekend in Minnesota, this is a big red flag game for the Alley Cats. Again, they were riding a seven-game winning streak into Week 11 last Sunday, had that upended by Minnesota, and now have opened the back door for the Pittsburgh Thunderbirds to effectively come in and steal their spot. Indy and Pittsburgh have not played yet in 2023. They've got two matchups now still on the calendar the next two weekends. If the Thunderbirds win both those games, they will outright usurp the Alley Cats playoff spot. And this feels like a kind of matchup that Max Shepard and just a very... uh, They're not efficient. They're not one of the best teams. (laughs) But if they get that kind of surge going and they can play with some confidence, Pittsburgh can be dangerous at times. Max Shepard is playing out of his mind in 2023. And Indy has just a little bit of give now. They look so solid for over a month, but after that loss in Minnesota, I've just got so many questions about where this Alley Cats team is. They'll be down a couple of their top throwers in Xavier Payne and Keegan North. This is a fantastic opportunity for the Thunderbirds to sneak back into the Central Division playoff picture. Uh, Elsewhere, 7-3 DC will be traveling to 5-5 Philadelphia. This is Philly fighting for their playoff lives. Not only do they need to win this week, they need to win next week, and they need Montreal to defeat Boston in week 13. So Philly does not hold the keys to their playoff outcome, but they still need this all-important victory. We talked about this before. This is a game that we actually had circled before the season started as one of the premier matchups of the entire regular season calendar. And now through the you know tumult of the schedule, It is still a very intriguing matchup, but it's just interesting that in such a loaded week 12 slate, this is kind of an undercard right now. I think it's going to be a fantastic game to watch. I think Philly's Mm going to play really, really fired up, and they always play the Breeze close. Meanwhile, Breeze don't have so much motivation other than to simply end Philly's season outright if they win. So that will be an interesting game to follow along. The last one that we wanted to mention was... Four and five Toronto, probably 
the slimmest chances of any team that's still alive to make the playoffs, but they will get an absolute cherry pie of a game against Detroit, who is still looking for their first win since 2017. So Rush could sneak very well back into five and five and still sit just on the very edge of the playoff picture. They also would need Montreal to defeat Boston in week 13. Again, Royale have not mm-hmm. won a game in 2023. So unlikely, especially given the way that Boston is playing. And I think the, the motivation the glory have shown to really make the postseason happen for the first time ever in Boston's franchise history. Those are just sort of the little points we wanted to touch on. That will do it for the overall coverage of week 12. You know it's been a massive episode, but there is just so much to get to, so much juicy details, but it will pale in comparison to all of the action going on this weekend that will, of course, start tomorrow night. Just two games, and it really sets the stage for New York facing Colorado. That will be on watch.adl.tv. And then the rest of the week 12 slate will take place on Saturday. Just an absolutely jam-packed day of Ultimate. I'll be tuned in all day. I'm sure you will be too, Daniel. It's going to be great. We look forward to every single matchup in the Week 12 calendar. And also, let's just say, hey, this is one of the first times in the last few seasons that these last two weekends of the regular season calendar really mean something. I mean, these are going to be just fantastic games setting up for the playoffs. And man, I think the 2023 playoffs are shaping up to be maybe the best ever. There's just going to be competition upon competition. And so much of these games will set the tone for that. But... That'll do it for our episode here. We'll wrap up the Week 12 preview pod. We will be back with you in just a couple of days. Sure to be just as long and complicated then, (laughs) given all of these matchups. We thank you. We'll be talking to you soon. Bye now.